Welcome to Walk Through the Bible, Susan Michaels' 12-month journey through the most exciting book on the planet. It will transform your life one page at a time. Be sure to subscribe for future episodes that will ignite your faith and bring your Bible to life. Now, let's join our host, Susan Michael. Well, hey there. Welcome back. This is Walk Through the Bible, week number four, and congratulations are in order. You have finished the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. This week, you're beginning on the second book of Exodus, so congratulations. Our theme this week is that God saw the affliction of his people. And we are covering uh, in the Daily Bible, it's pages 97 to 121, or the dates of January 22nd through the 28th. Now, let's compare Genesis and Exodus. In the book of Genesis, you know, we, it was the book of beginnings. And the book of Exodus means exit. So it is about the exodus out of Egypt. Um, in Jewish thought, it's known as the Book of the Covenant, though, because the second part of the Book of Exodus is about God's covenant with his people that he made uh, in the desert. Now, in Genesis, our bigger-than-life patriarch is Abraham. He rules the story. In Exodus, we have a new leader, and his name is Moses. Now, Moses is educated. He's trained. Um, he's been raised in the royal household. He is a uh, he becomes an author, and a lawgiver, and a builder, and a military leader. I mean, he is really a very capable man, quite a leader uh, in all of history. Uh, the book of Exodus, as I said, the first part tells about the Exodus from Egypt. And um, so let's review the story that we're reading this week. We left off last week where the Israelites had been living in Egypt. They went there for food. God used Joseph to save uh, the people of Israel as well as the people of Egypt. And um, Joseph, uh, Jacob has died uh, in, in Egypt and he's taken to be buried in the land of promise. Um, and then later Joseph dies in Egypt. And that's sort of how we leave off, uh, left off last week. Now, this week, uh, we see the oppression gaining on the Israelites. They have been made slaves. A, a new Pharaoh arrived in Egypt that didn't know Joseph. And he saw these Israelites, they were multiplying like crazy. And uh, so he began to treat them harshly and to put them into slavery. And finally, he said, look, um, just I want the midwives to kill every newborn baby uh, because these these Israelites, man, they're just multiplying like crazy. And the midwives uh, tried their best not to do that and refused to do it. Um, and we have the story of one of the Hebrew women uh, named Jochebed. And she gave birth to a boy, and she knew uh, that he was supposed to be killed. So she puts him into a basket, puts him there at the edge of the Nile River, and he is then found by a daughter of Pharaoh um, who takes him into her home and raises him. 
And uh, one day, um, now Moses, as an adult, uh, who knows he's Hebrew, he knows he's of that heritage, he goes down, he sees the slaves, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster um, mistreating uh, the Hebrews. And uh, in fact, he strikes a Hebrew. And so uh, Moses strikes back and he actually kills the Egyptian. And um, so once it becomes known that he's done this, he flees Egypt. He goes to the land of Midian. Now, Midian is all the way past the Sinai Desert, across the Gulf of Aqaba, which is a part of the Red Sea. It's in Saudi Arabia today, the area of Midian. But it seems like that's where he went. And um, the Midianites, they did, they were nomadic. And so they did travel into the Sinai area. And um, maybe it was in the Sinai where he met uh, Jethro and his daughters. And he remained there and he married one of the daughters uh, named Zipporah. And it's some 40 years later that God then uh, speaks to Moses from a burning bush on Mount Horeb. And he demonstrates his power to Moses and uh, he reveals his name to Moses. And then he says to Moses, he's going to send him back to Egypt uh, to demand that Pharaoh allow his people to go free. And of course, Moses is very insecure about this and unsure. He says, please, my brother Aaron, he speaks much better than me. So finally, God says, "Okay, you can take Aaron. Uh, but in the end, you know, it's Moses that did the speaking to Pharaoh, which is interesting. Now, um, in this confrontation between the God of the Hebrews and Pharaoh, who is worshipped as a God of the Egyptian people, um, he's seen as divine. And there's this great confrontation now taking place where God is telling him to let his people go free and Pharaoh refuses to do it. And so there's a series of plagues uh, upon Egypt um, until finally Pharaoh himself loses his firstborn son and um, he tells the Israelites to leave. And um, God has instructed them, the Israelites, to prepare to leave. Um, but because of that final plague, they were to kill a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. And that house would be passed by by this plague. It would not enter a house covered by the blood of the lamb. And so the Israelites did that. They were spared that final plague. The next morning, uh, they were able to flee Egypt. And um, their next big obstacle, of course, is what is known as the Red Sea or the Reed Sea. Um, we'll talk about that later, but it's a big body of water. They need to cross it. The Egyptian army's behind them. We all know the story because why? Well, not only have most of us read it or heard it in Sunday school, we've all watched the Ten Commandments, right? It's my absolute favorite movie. I love the Ten Commandments. I would love to watch it every single year. It's always on around the time of Passover or Easter. Um, but finally, my husband said he was so tired of the Ten Commandments, so I haven't been able to watch it for a few years, but absolutely loved the movie. We've all seen it, and Moses raises his staff, and the waters part, and there's a big wall of water on both sides, and the Israelites walk through, 
on dry ground. Well, that's exactly what the Bible says happened. It says there was a wall of water on each side and they walked through on dry ground. Then the Egyptian army began to walk into the the dry ground and pursue the Israelites. And uh, the water then comes rushing back and covers them and drowns the Egyptian army. It's quite a story. I mean, this is uh, really befitting of a major uh, cinematic production, which, um, which it was made into one. And it's so fun to watch that. I, I love watching it. Now, God has his people alone. The Egyptians are gone. The enemy is gone. They're now in the wilderness, in the desert. They have no food, no water. And they're like, what in the world are we doing? Uh, did you bring us out here to die, Moses? And uh, that begins the wilderness wanderings. So I want to take a minute here and talk about the two big unknowns in this story. And um, the when and the where are the two big unknowns in this most dramatic story. Uh, last week, I talked about the whole timing issue of when were the Israelites in Egypt. And um, I hope you were able to watch the Going Deeper episode that we released last week. And we talk about the archaeological finds in Egypt that actually seem to indicate the whole story is absolutely true. And the Israelites were there in Egypt. But the whole timing issue is the real key issue. The archaeologists are dating it at a different time. Uh, what does the Bible say? So I hope you joined us on Going Deeper. Last week, we uh, interviewed Tim Mahoney, the producer of Patterns of Evidence of the Exodus. Now, this week, I want to talk about the when and the where. Um, also, when, you know, a lot of times we will say that the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, but that's really not the case. Um, there are three different scriptures that talk about the timing of being around 400 to 430 years. But these scriptures do not say that they were in slavery for 400 years. And it takes a little bit of analysis, which I took the time this week to do an analysis of those three scriptures to get to the bottom of it. And it was 430 years from the time Abraham entered Egypt to the time the Israelites uh, were uh, the exodus out of Egypt and the law given uh, in the desert. So that's the 430 year period. Well, as we know, Abraham went to Egypt, then he went back and he had Isaac, and then Isaac had. Uh, Jacob and Esau, and Jacob went up and labored uh, for his two wives, Rachel and Leah. So we have all these stories that have taken place that are a part of the 430 years. So how long were the Israelites in Egypt under Joseph? It was more like about 200 years. And how many years were they actually in slavery? And the estimate is it's anywhere from 86 years to roughly 120 years of slavery. I, for one, was a little relieved to find this out because I've kept thinking, why did God allow them to be in slavery 400 years? 
I mean, a hundred years is long enough, uh, believe me. But um, but I understand now. Uh, he did let him languish uh, in this torturous situation for a whole four hundred years, uh, more like one hundred years. Um, the other issue on when did this happen is that. The Bible never names Pharaoh. We don't know. There's Pharaohs all the time from when uh, Abraham first went to Egypt. And then there's Pharaohs through the whole Joseph story and now the Exodus, the slavery and then the Exodus story. And never does the Bible tell us which Pharaoh was ruling at which time. So it doesn't help us so much uh, with the timing. But there's one thing that um, in scripture that has been a little misleading, um, and that is that there's five different times in the Bible where uh, the name Ramses is used to describe a section of the country or the city where the Israelites were and where the Exodus began from Ramses. Well, that's why the Ten Commandments. If you watch that movie, it has Ramses II is the Pharaoh that has enslaved the uh, Israelites, and he's the one that his army suffers um, during the Exodus. And that's because it says that the, sla the Israelite slaves left Ramses, and then they went to other places, and they come to the sea, and they have the parting of the sea. So it's like, well, Ramses, that must mean that all this took place during or after Ramses II. But when you look at the scriptures, you realize it doesn't say that that was the Pharaoh of the time. It's using a geographical description. And we believe it was used anachronistically. I hope I pronounced that right. And anachronism is when I'm writing about a location and I use the location name today when I'm writing it. It's like I call that place New York or Kentucky or Florida because that's what it's called today. But if I'm writing a historical novel or, or a, an analysis, it may not have been called that back when the events happened. And that's what we believe is the case here with the area called Ramses. When the Israelites were there, it was not called Ramses. It was called Ramses later on when the story was being written down. So this week on Going Deeper, we are going to talk about the uh, timing issue here and the place names leading up to the Exodus and the Red Sea parting. So. Where was the Red Sea crossing? We do not know. There are two different viewpoints. One uh, is what we call the minimalist view. Um, that's the one where the uh, translation of the term uh, Yom Suf, uh, this is the name of the body of water that they crossed, uh, Yom Suf, uh, yam means sea. Everybody knows that. But what does suf mean? And some people say it means red, so it's the Red Sea. Um, and others say it means reeds. It's the Reed Sea. Near the Egyptian border, 
there are lakes and marshy areas where the reeds grow. Reeds don't grow in an ocean. They, uh, they grow in lower uh, levels of water. And so the theory that the Israelites crossed one of these small lakes um, is called the minimalist view because that means that the miracle was not as big and grandiose as the Bible seems to imply that it was, or that the movie, The Ten Commandments, shows that it was. So that's why we call it the minimalist view. Um, there's another view that says that um, Yamsuf means the Red Sea, and it could either be the Gulf of Suez, which is an arm of the Red Sea, or the Gulf of Aqaba, which is another arm of the Red Sea. And that maybe the Israelites traveled for about three days and got over to the um, Gulf of Aqaba. And that's a deep sea, very, very deep. In fact, it's so deep that even that's challenging. But they have found one area of it that could have been passable. The rest of it is so deep, it's impossible uh, for them to have passed. But there is one area um, that they have found where this passing could have taken place. So those are the two views, but all of that affects also not only how big was the miracle, but it also affects where was Mount Horeb? Where is Mount Sinai? And there's three different locations for it inside the Sinai Peninsula, and there's another location in Saudi Arabia, because as, as I said, that's where ancient Midian was. And um, so none of it's really, really clear. But this week on Going Deeper, we have Tim Mahoney back with us. We're going to talk about the crossing of the Red Sea. He did a lot of investigation about it. What were his conclusions? Um, so please join us back here on Going Deeper uh, this week. Now, let's talk about the plagues, because a major part of this story is the plagues. And um, I want to say that once again, um, you know, everybody, they look at these miraculous stories and they try to determine, well, could there be a natural explanation? And so um, a natural explanation for the plagues, a minimalist view would be that it was all caused by natural causes. Well, what would those causes be, you might be thinking? Well, actually, they uh, believe that it could have all started with the flooding of the Nile. And this flooding of the Nile then led to the growth of algae and bacteria. Well, what's so interesting is just in the last few years, here in the United States, we've had a growth of red algae. And it does make the water look red. And it's also very, um, very full of bacteria and all it makes your eyes burn. It, people had to stay away from the beaches because of this algae. So they're saying that in the Nile River, flooding could have caused an algae like this that made the water uh, look red and maybe have birthed a growth of bacteria that may have made the water red. Um, it would have then made the frogs to be jumping out of the normal places of the Nile rivers into the land uh, because of the flooding. Um, it would have killed the fish 
it the the dead fish would have and the bacteria in the water would have bred these insects and um, the gnats and the flies, and they may have carried disease themselves, which would have gone into the livestock. And then the same disease and the insects could have caused boils on the skin. So interesting, huh? That they they actually say that this one could have led to the next, could have led to the next. All right. Then let's look at the locust. Um, of course, locust swarms are not unusual in that part of the world. Just in 2020, there was an absolutely humongous locust swarm. It went through uh, Africa and into the Middle East. And um, so locusts could have a natural explanation for it that year. Um, you might be saying, well, what about hail? Um, well, hail is not common in Egypt, but it's not impossible. And do you know that in 2020, they had a big hailstorm in Egypt? So it is possible. And then the plague of darkness. Uh, one theory is that it was what we call a hamsin. Hamsin can last for about three days, and it's when the hot, Desert air comes blowing in from the east, and with it comes the dust of the of the desert. And I mean, it's a dust storm, and so it can completely block out the sun. Um, it can make the day dark. Um, now, it's interesting that in the story it says the Egyptians had darkness, but the Israelites didn't. Um, could there be a natural explanation? I don't know. But the point I'm getting to is this. I believe that even if you can come up with a natural explanation for this or that, there is no explanation for the timing, which was absolutely miraculous, and the announcements by Moses before the plague took place. So there's still the hand of God in operation, and he might use natural forces to bring about the intended result. So that doesn't deter me at all. The final plague, which is the death of the firstborn, once again, I cannot come up or have not read any natural explanation for a plague that would have only struck the homes of the Egyptians and not the homes of the Israelites that have put the blood on the door. That seems to me beyond any natural explanation and uh, one that is totally um, spiritual. So don't misunderstand me. I believe the whole story is a miracle. I'm just telling you that if somebody comes to you and says, oh, well, there's a natural explanation for it all. No, there's not a natural explanation for the timing, uh, for the announcement ahead of time. And for God giving Pharaoh the choice before each one of them. So uh, don't let them belittle the, uh, the miracles of the plagues. And then, of course, we have the Passover. And God tells the Israelites to uh, kill a lamb, put the door on the doorpost, and that this will protect them during this plague. Um, the spiritual parallels, of course, to this Passover and to the, um, the um, blood on the doorpost is that uh, we see um, the spiritual act 
explanation is that the world that is in bondage and slavery and sin, um, God comes and he reveals his power through Jesus and he revealed who he is through Jesus. And then he delivered the ultimate sacrifice of his only son, Jesus, the Lamb of God slain from the foundations of the earth. The Apostle Paul called him our Passover lamb was slain on our behalf. And so as we accept that, and you could say we apply the blood of the lamb on our lives, we come under it. We say, yes, I accept that sacrificial death on my behalf. And I live under that blood. We are then God's people. We're identified as part of God's people. And we are protected. And we celebrate our own Passover every year in the form of the communion service. So, I mean, what an amazing spiritual parallel. And um, you can't make this stuff up. Um, and, you know, when you look at the story of the Israelites, the, the story of the, the slavery and then their, their deliverance and the Passover lamb and the Passover blood, um, and then that they made, God told them that they were to every year repeat this story and to relive it as though it was they themselves who were slaves in Egypt. And they do this with a Passover meal and a Passover Seder. And it was at that Passover meal that Jesus took the cup and said, this is my blood shed for you. And so we as Christians now are also observing our own Passover uh, in the form of a communion. How did God do this? How did he devise this very natural and physical acting out of something that became a spiritual reality for millions of people all around the world later on? That's what's so amazing about the Bible. That's what uh, I think makes it so exciting, is that once you begin to understand the story behind the story, um, it all just comes alive. So um, now for, to finish our reading today, we've had the, the plagues, the Passover, uh, the Exodus, we've gone through the Red Sea, and now the Israelites are in the wilderness. And now we begin a very, very tender story, actually, um, although it's painful at moments, but a very tender story of how God begins to reveal himself to his children, the children of Israel. And he reveals himself as their provider. He provides water for them. He provides miraculous food for them. He says, I am the God that heals you. He's there to take care of their every need. And then he begins to re, uh, provide for them, reveal himself to them. And then he begins to give them instruction. And we're going to leave our story there this week. And next week, we're going to pick up on God's instructions to his children and what he's teaching them. Remember, the word Torah which means the first five books of the Bible, we refer to as Torah. The word Torah means instruction. And so God, in revealing, telling the Israelites what to do, 
He's teaching them. He's giving them instruction. And that's the real heart of Torah, is this instruction. So we have um, covered our lesson for this week. I really encourage you, uh, come back again uh, in a couple of days. We're going to launch Going Deeper. It's going to be uh, the evidences of the Exodus interview with Tim Mahoney. It's going to be really great. So I can't look, can't wait to see you back here for Going Deeper. And then next week for our next week's readings of Walk Through the Bible. Down below in the show notes, we link to you to Tim Mahoney's two uh, documentaries. One is called Patterns of Evidence, the, the Exodus. The other one is called Patterns of Evidence, the Red Sea. If you want a fascinating watch, uh, you will learn so much. I really recommend that you get those two DVDs and watch the documentary. For sure, join me back here on Going Deeper when we interview Tim Mahoney. See you back here then and next week. Until then, God bless.